In the book of Hebrews, wow, we are hitting halfway through the book already. Uh, definitely picking up more, more ground in this than we did going through the Gospel of John, but um, I want to give the time that it deserves as well. Uh, hitting chapter 7 this morning. Uh, last week we went through and looked at uh, the fact that, that he is our hope and that we have this hope in the gospel. We have this hope in Christ and, and that he's steadfast. And so as we're looking at this this morning, the writer shifts gears. And remember, the theme in Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And we're going to see that he is better than the Levitical priests, the priests in Judaism, the ones that carried out all of the stuff. So as we go through here, it, it tends to appear complex, but I want you to understand this is, as I mentioned before, the path, the writer here in, in, to the Hebrews has a pastor's heart. And what he's doing is he is giving them, it, uh, it's a complex sounding argument, but what he's trying to do is to reel them in and to bring them back to the simplicity of Christ, the simplicity of the Christian faith. And, and our faith truly is simple. This is not rocket science. It's, yeah, I, I love getting off into, you know, word studies and doing all the, the technical stuff and looking at the cultural history and all of those things. And yet, I was, I loved, uh, Brian shared, Brian Whitlock shared yesterday at the men's breakfast about uh, our, our, our chief goal. And we, we do well to not lose sight of the fact that we're to love God and love one another. And all of this is working towards that end. And so that's, that's our, that's our aim. That's his aim here because these people were getting kind of off into the weeds. They were getting confused about Judaism and, and looking at all of that. And so as a result, their lives were burdened and they were, they became burdensome to them. And, uh, that, that, sense that they had of when they first came to the Lord. I don't know if you remember, I know when I first came to the Lord, man, I was excited. And there was this newness, this freshness, this hunger, this intense shift in my own heart, in my life, and, and the joy that followed and all of that. And, 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 and that's all fine. I, I, and I'm not saying that it's not God's will for that we always have that joy because he does want us to walk with joy. And yet when we first come, there's this excitement that accompanies the new birth and wearing off, then we can begin to struggle, especially if there are questions that are remaining about our faith. And there were in these people's lives. That's why he gets up to chapter five and he says, man, let me tell you about this high priest after the order of Melchizedek, this guy that uh, is a high priest forever. And then he says, but wait, I don't think that you're mature enough to handle that because you have unanswered questions in your life. You are struggling with things that pertain to Christian maturity, and you have need of going back to the the, the basics, going back to the ABCs before we move on. And then, then he reengages them at the end of chapter 6, and that's where we've come. And Again, his goal is simplicity. He he knows that, and I look at that in our lives, guys. We can get to the point where we get kind of complacent about the things of God. We can become, in the busyness of our lives, we can, uh, with all the responsibilities we have, and at times uh, a, a huge weight in our lives, and it can it can influence that desire for just the pure milk, the pure meat of the word that we come and that we 
feed on his word and that we understand what it is that he has for us. Uh, it, in those times, I found myself, I, I remember Pastor Chuck Smith, the, the guy that started the whole Calvary Chapel deal, uh, he would say, you know, when I don't understand what's going on in my life, and if I don't understand the, the circumstances I'm in, I always fall back on what I do understand. I fall back on the basics. And I want to look at three of faith's basics here as we start this morning, because pertaining to the Hebrew Christians in the first century and also pertaining to us, when the moorings get loosened a bit, when we begin to question, when we begin to not understand or, or we become just complacent about the things of God, it's always good to refresh. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, to tell you the same things again is not a troublesome thing for me, and it's expedient for you. Uh, I have a friend, pastors of a church in California, and one of his sayings is, I, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I leak. And, and sometimes we do. Sometimes we just forget. And we it's no more complicated than that. And so we need to stay grounded in the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, the first is, is the three of faith's basics. The first is, Jesus Christ is all you need to know in order to go to heaven. Uh, these people were, again, they were beginning to look at and to waffle. They were beginning to drift, as he said. Their, their hearts had perhaps become hard to the things of God and all. And yet in John 14, Jesus says this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. Further down in the chapter, it says that Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus' answer was so profound, and I've read it so many times that, that the significance, the weight of it can, can be lost because it's something we know so well. He said to him, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is all you need to know in order to go to heaven. Uh, if you've begun to move from the simplicity of knowing him, you need to clean house a bit, folks. It's that simple. Uh, the second thing is this. Only he can get you there. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews, the great burden that he has for the Hebrew Christians in the first century is they were starting to think, well, maybe it's not just Christ. Maybe it's Jesus plus, or maybe it's Judaism instead. Uh, and Again, I look to God's word for the answers to these things. In Acts chapter 4, uh, Luke writes, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is the only one who can get us to heaven. I grew up in, in an in ism. <laughs> in my case, it was Mormonism. But there's a lot of isms out there, and there are a lot of groups that promise to get you to heaven. Almost universally, that group will set themselves up. It's like, here's me, here's God, and here's the group. And, and it's a dangerous thing because that group's responsibility is not to get me to heaven. The, the function of the body of Christ, what we do here, it is not the church's job to get you to heaven. It's the church's job to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's the church's job to, to, to come alongside that we come together as a community and, and there are definite things that God has designed in the church, but the church should never be in a place where it sets itself between God and man. It's just not part of it. 
Because only he can get you there. It's an individual thing. Yeah, in the Old Testament, he saved a group. He, or, well, he, he worked with a group, with, with Israel, with the Jews. In the New Covenant, it's a group, but it's a group of individuals. Because it's an individual, it's a personal relationship that we're after. And that didn't happen in Judaism. And it was happening in these people's lives early on. But they, again... They were loosening up. They were becoming weak. They were, they were drifting. They were questioning. They had big questions. And there are certain questions that we have, folks, that are good. I mean, I don't understand a lot about God. And we would all agree on that. But there are certain questions that come up that can be what I call stumbling questions. You know, if I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins, that's a huge stumbling question because if I, my answer to that determines where I spend eternity. And so that's a huge question. It's not so much as do you sprinkle or do you dunk with, of course I believe that the word of God says you dunk with water baptism, but people get hung up on minor things like that. Uh, and so we do well to major in the majors, not major in the minors. And He's majoring in the majors on major issues with these people because their answer to some of the questions in their lives was going to determine, as we saw when we looked at apostasy two weeks ago, was going to determine whether they made the cut or they didn't. So Peter, interesting, when when we talk about only Jesus can get you there, Peter didn't say here in Acts, he, he didn't say salvation nowhere else, but he says salvation in no one else because, again, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The third thing, the third of faith's basics that we look at here is he can get you there all by himself. Again, it's not the church's job. It's not through, as we're going to look at this morning, it's not going to be through a priest. When we look at the priesthood, folks, when Jesus hung on the cross and it says, and the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, that ended the priesthood. It was done. It was fulfilled. There was no more need for a man to get other men to God and to represent God to the people. Anything from that point forward, any representation of a priest or a priesthood, except for this, the high priesthood of Melchizedek, fulfilled by Jesus himself, anything other than that is a fraud. Anything other than that is is false doctrine. And there are a lot of quote, priests out there. But it's not a biblical priesthood that they're fulfilling. It's something that's been added on. It's something that pulls man's attention from God and onto other men. Very dangerous. We'll talk about that more as we go on this morning and in the weeks to come as we look further at this priesthood, according to Levi, compared to the priesthood according to Melchizedek. So uh, interesting thing is, is he's the one that gets us there. He doesn't need my help. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he... It's foolishness to think that I am going to help God with the act of my own salvation. Yes, it's by faith, and it's by faith alone. But if someone is drowning, they don't offer to help the person that came to rescue them. They're helpless. And acknowledging our helplessness before God is really important in understanding the basics, the, the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. It's very important that we know that we provide nothing. We believe or we don't. And of course, a universal principle is you will always act on what you believe. Your life will be shaped by what you believe. You will structure your life around what you believe or what you don't believe. 
And his concern for these people was they were beginning to believe the wrong stuff, and he's trying to get them steered back on course to the simplicity of the gospel, to the simplicity of simple devotion to Christ. It's not complicated. They were making it complicated, and he's reeling them in. So the point is, Jesus is trustworthy to get you to heaven. Judaism is not. In the writer's case, it's tough to tell people that have been steeped in the Mosaic law for generations that it's by faith alone. And that was where a lot of the pushback was coming. That's where the pushback was coming. If you read the book of Galatians and other places in the New Testament where false teachers were coming in and saying, well, salvation by grace through faith is fine, but you you still need to keep the laws of Moses. No, that was terminated at the cross. The requirements of the law were fulfilled, not by me, but by him. And now through simple faith, they're they're fulfilled in me, in Christ. So the the question that would come up in these people's minds is, how can I understand this new way of trusting Christ? And the answer is by understanding that Jesus Christ is your new high priest, and he will connect you to the Father. He's the only one that can connect people to the Father. So as we get into this, I want to, I'm just going to summarize a little bit of Israel's history, because it's important that we can track with the names that are being used and and the the lineage that was so important to the Jewish mind. Remember, I've said many times that as you approach this book, you, you sort of have to look at it from the standpoint of being a Jew. And, and understanding Judaism, we'll, we'll touch on it some. But I want to talk about the fathers. You talk about the fathers and the prophets in the Old Testament. The fathers, the first one was Abraham. And he was a guy that was, he was a pagan idolater. He was way on the other side of the river over in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern day Iraq. And and he was there with his family and doing his thing. And God called him away. He said, Abraham, or Abram was his name before that. Uh, Abram, I'm going to give you a land. I want you to head west. I'll reveal the land to you as you go when you get there. But by faith, Abram had to trust God to take off and go. And so he does. He goes to this land. He's directed by God to settle in a place called Shechem, which is in Jesus' day, it would have been in Samaria. It's right there, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans had their whole weird worship thing going. I'm not going to get into that. But it, it's sort of in north central Israel. And, and so he settles there. And then he has a son and his son's name is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, and I'm, boy, I'm passing over a whole lot of Old Testament history in, in this, but, but so you understand what's being said here. Isaac has a son, and his name, name is Jacob. Now, Jacob has a brother named Esau, and, and Jacob manages to get the birthright and the blessing from, uh, from Esau, and Esau gets upset with him and chases him down with 400 guys, and there's a great story and all of that. But when Jacob wrestles with the Lord, and he wrestles all night. He says, I'm not letting go till you bless me. There at the brook Jabbok. Uh, he is blessed by God. The angel of the Lord is there. He's the one he's wrestling with. Uh, appearance of, I believe, a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. We'll look at that more as we go and we look at Melchizedek. But so, and, and the way that the blessing comes to Jacob is he changes his name from Jacob, which is loosely translated conniver, and he changes his name to Israel governed by God. And so his name is Israel now, and he has he marries two different women, Leah and Rachel. I just want to speed this up because I could, I could get off in the weeds. I love these things. But through his two wives, he has 12 sons. 
And each of them, as they're named, become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how the 12 tribes comes about. That's how we look at the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how God established the nation, through these 12 sons down in Egypt. 400 years later, there's a couple million of them that come back and go into the land. Now, when they're in their travels between Egypt and Canaan, that 40 years that they didn't need to wander around for 40 years, it could have been 11 days, but through their unbelief, they're in that place in between. God raises up the tribe of Levi to be priests. And when they go into the land, he gives everybody a portion of the land except for Levi. They don't get land because they are carrying out the priestly duties. Uh, they get some Levitical cities and all that. But the point is, is that they are set apart. They're the ones who will carry out the function of representing God to the people and the people to God. Now, the sons of Levi carried out all of the functions of the tabernacle, and the sons of Aaron, who were among the sons of Levi, were the ones who would be charged with actually doing the sacrifices and the priestly duties, the direct duties of carrying it out. So it's in this, in understanding a Jewish mindset, these people are wrestling with this, and they're going, do I need to go back to Levi because that's how everything's been done. That's all I knew until this guy Jesus showed up and turned my life upside down and, and all of that. Again, this is 30 years after the cross, roughly. And so they're wrestling. Do I go back to Levi? Do I go back to this way that God had definitely ordained? Or do I embrace this new thing? And, and the writer here reaches back into the Old Testament and he locates this guy named Melchizedek. It's like, have you ever seen a movie where a guy kind of, he wanders out of the fog and, and you kind of see his shadowy figure there? That's how I look at Melchizedek. He, he comes wandering out of the fog. He shows up. There's some interaction. And then he disappears back into the fog. There's nothing known about this guy other than the short narratives we see in Genesis. And then he shows up again in Psalm 110 where David is speaking messianic, he's prophesying about the Messiah, he disappears back into the fog, and he shows up here in Hebrews chapter 7 and beyond. So uh, just great stuff here uh, as far as relating all of these things. Now, one of the things that was a stumbling block, a big stumbling block for the Jews, was that they were seeing Jesus being represented as this high priest through the order of Melchizedek, but they knew that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, the sons of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. Now, in Israel, kings came from Judah. Abraham, or David, King David, came from the tribe of Judah. And the Messiah, the coming king of Israel, was prophesied, which Jesus fulfilled, was from the tribe of Judah. So where their disconnect was, they're going, how can this guy who is from the tribe of Judah, be representing God in a priestly manner. And that's where the context comes in, in Hebrews chapter 7, because this guy comes in, he does a brilliant exposition. Don't get lost in the weeds on it. It's to bring them, remember, it's to bring them from kind of looking at things, things getting complicated, they're confused, but it's to bring clarity and to bring simplicity in their devotion to Christ. The Jews would have known this guy Melchizedek's name, but they would have been shocked. I, I, I imagine the first time that they read this letter, uh, because there wasn't anything else going on with Melchizedek, not for hundreds of years. 
And the first time they sat and read this, and, and then perhaps searching the scriptures, searching out the Old Testament scriptures that were available to some, it would have blown them away. It would have been totally new stuff. Uh, as usual, what we're going to do is we're going to begin in chapter 6, verse 19, to catch the context uh, before we hit chapter 7. And I'm going to go through, we'll comment on the last couple of verses in chapter 6, and then we'll read through the first 10, cha- 10 verses of chapter 7 together. So in chapter 6, verse 19, we read, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, When he talks about the presence behind the veil, that's a direct reference to the tabernacle and then the temple uh, later on. And and remember last week we looked at this word forerunner. It was a very unique word because a high priest until Jesus was a representative of the people to God and of God to the people. That's different than this word. He didn't go. Jesus didn't go as as a representative. He went as as a forerunner. And we looked at that. He would be like, it was a military term that was used for somebody that did reconnaissance. And they would go in to pave the way so that the troops could follow. And there is a definite expectation, the way this is structured in Greek, that Jesus goes as a forerunner to lead us in to the very presence of God. Very different than what was represented in Judaism. So that's, and, and, and he talks about having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we'll look at that as we go along here in chapter seven and then beyond. The, the writer is very specific in saying he's a high priest forever. He doesn't die. We're talking about an eternal high priest that doesn't minister in an earthly sanctuary. He ministers in a heavenly sanctuary. And that he doesn't die gives us great advantage with this high priest. So at issue was the first century Christians were interested in Jesus. But again, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the family of Aaron. And they had questions. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions, if you have stumbling questions in your life, get those resolved. If you struggle with whether or not to believe that Jesus died for you, that he went to that cross to purchase your soul, get those resolved. If you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, if you've never come and given your life to him, today could be the day that that's resolved. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance on the answer to those questions. Very, very, there is no greater question than, who am I and why am I here? And, and, and coming to the understanding that I'm here by the will of God to live out this life. And the singular question that makes more, has more weight than any other is what happens when I die? And when I realize that what the Bible puts forth is true and that Jesus himself went to that cross, died in my place because the wages of sin is death. He who knew no sin became sin that we could become the righteousness of God, that if that question is not answered, please, I encourage you, let it be answered today. Don't walk out of here with a question mark over your head. That's a great burden this guy had for these people. It's a burden I have for you. And that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, want to be sure that nobody comes through here that doesn't hear, that isn't exposed to the gospel of Christ. There's all kinds of stuff being thrown about out there 
There's all kinds of programs. There's all kinds of social agendas. There's, you know, I am not going to give a message that has to do with social relativity. I'm not going to give a message that, that is therapeutic, uh, what is it? Therapeutic deism, where we talk about God in some generic way and then we give ideas and thoughts on how to live a good life. That's a self-help seminar. That's not what the body of Christ is about. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And out of that, the love, understanding the love he has for us and allowing that love to be shed abroad in our hearts that we can express it to others. It's powerful, folks. So these guys had questions. And what the writer saw was that their faith would be eclipsed uh, because doubt is crippling. And their doubts creeping in, their doubts about God, their doubts about Christ had crept in, and he's straightening them out. He's wanting to bring correction through this teaching that he does in chapter 7 on this guy Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him... Excuse me, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like a son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. For indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive a priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, and the word here is contrasted to there. You'll see here and there both in verse 8. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, pays tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the writer introduces this theme, Melchizedek, and he first introduces the high priesthood in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of the people. And so as we look at that, we understand that, again, he stops in chapter 5, he starts to engage, and he pushes in the clutch, and now he's fully letting it back out. He is going to go in depth into this person of Melchizedek and give the clearest exposition in all of God's word on what this guy was about. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Verse... One again in chapter seven for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. The, the most high God there is El Elyon. Uh, and it's used both in Genesis and here. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham also gave a tenth or a tithe of all first being translated king of righteousness and then king of Salem meaning king of peace. So we look at this guy Melchizedek. What does his name mean? Uh, and, the writer here says that it's translated king of righteousness and then king of Salem or king of peace. And the, taking the word apart, Melech in Hebrew is king. And to Zedek, it starts with a T, so it's hard to pronounce, means to be righteous or righteousness. So his name is Melchizedek, literally translated king 
of righteousness. So when we look at King of Salem, uh, that is most likely, I mean, it's almost surely ancient Jerusalem. Uh, the word Salem comes from the Hebrew root Shalom, where we get peace. And so when he's called the King of Salem, King of Shalom, King of Peace, uh, Jerusalem would have been, Jeru means city, Salem means peace. Now, Jerusalem is literally called the city of peace, yet that city has enjoyed anything but for millennia. They have not yet realized what God intended through their name, because names in the Old Testament are very, very important. And, and they have never come to a full settling of being the city of peace. They will. In the millennial reign of Christ, when he comes to personally reign from Jerusalem, from the city of peace for a thousand years, uh, they will realize it then. Probably not until then. Have you ever wondered why that little city over in the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea in this little tiny country, why that would be such a hotbed? I mean, it has been for thousands of years. I mean, it's not, in human terms, it's not unlike other cities. But it is very unlike other cities because it is the city of God. And, And that nation still has status with God. And we don't ascribe to the, 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 the notion that the church has somehow replaced the promises of God for Israel. That's not, that's not good theology. God is not finished with that nation. He is not finished with Israel or Jerusalem. And it's very interesting to see the role they play on the world stage. So he was called the king of righteousness. That's who he was. And it's followed by what he did, the king of peace. He was the king of peace. He was the king of that ancient city. Uh, I, I think about that. We were at a pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guys stood up and, and he was sharing. And I never thought about this before. He said, why do you think it is, like in Romans chapter 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, calls us an apostle. Uh, Paul always went with who he was in Christ before he went with what he did for Christ, you see. And so you could look at that. I could look at that and say, John, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as a pastor. It's what I do. It's not who I am. Who I am is a child of God. Who I am is a child of the king. And in, in that, that order is clear. If you start looking for that, you see that order all over God's word because he always goes and establishes who we are in him, before he talks about what we do for him. Um, the other thing about this is righteousness always comes before peace. Think about it. Uh, in Philippians 4, for instance, I'm not going to go there, but the Apostle Paul writing there, he talks about uh, having peace with God. But Folks, it is impossible to have peace with God or the peace of God. Uh, it, it talks about the peace of God ruling in our hearts, and it's impossible to have the peace of God without having peace with God. So peace with God produces what? Righteousness, because it's not my righteousness, it's his that's imputed to me when I give my life to Christ. As a person who is now righteous by declaration, I can have Peace with God. It's only then that I can experience the peace of God, learn to live in a way that I am not tossed by every circumstance that comes into my life. 
So, uh, as we look at this, I, I just, I look at the way that these words are ordered and, and, and it, I don't know that the writer's going there, but it, it, it's a good reminder for me to, to understand that I can only experience the peace of God when I have peace with God. I can only know Christ by who I am in Him and not by what I do for Him. So what the writer's doing here is he's, he's reaching back to Genesis chapter 14 as he talks about this guy Melchizedek. I'm going to read a few verses out of Genesis 14, uh, verses 16 through 20, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. It says there in Genesis 14, so he uh, brought back, and this is Abraham here, we're breaking into the middle of the passage where Abraham is returning from this war of the kings. It was a bunch of Mesopotamian kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot and taken him and his family off. They carted him off, and Abraham got word of it. He went back and got him, and he took the spoils of war as well. He got the booty from these kings that he conquered. So breaking into that in verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedarlamar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, verse 18, then Melchizedek, first time this guy's mentioned in the Bible, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's interesting. And the New Testament corollary is, is not lost on me. I hope it's not lost on you. This guy Melchizedek shows up. The first thing he does is bring out bread and wine. We know that as being symbolic of the body and the blood. Looking forward. Uh, I love God's word and how it gives us these hints. It doesn't, it doesn't elaborate on that. But we know that who the one who brought out bread and wine at the end of his life, his earthly life, was. It says that he was the priest of the Most High, El Elyon. Again, the same words that the writer's using here in Hebrews. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, of El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you, your enemies, into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth or a tithe of all. Interesting. Uh, as he keeps, he repeats three times in this passage, he talks about El Elyon, the God Most High, or the Most High God, because all of these different nation states, uh, city states that populated the, the, the region at that time, they had their own local deities. And, and so they would be perking up when here's this guy, Melchizedek, he shows up and he's saying, no, not those other gods, not the Canaanite gods, because Jerusalem was firmly in the hands of the Canaan, Canaanite peoples when Melchizedek was there. And he's saying, no, it's not those gods. It's the God Most High. It's the God of Abraham. He identifies himself as being part of the same group that possesses the God of Abraham. He's talking about the Most High God, the one who's above all the other lowercase g gods. The thing that I look at here, and it reminds me, is is there's a doctrine that we look at in the Christian church, and that's the fact that God is transcendent. And what that means, you don't have to remember that, but you do well to remember that he is over all, that he is transcendent, he is high. 
He he's above all that there is. He's above creation. He's above the universe. He's a, it, it's all part of what he owns. And so we look at the fact that he's transcendent in this. And when Melchizedek is identifying Abraham and blessing Abraham with the bread and wine, Abraham responds by tithing. Again, first place that that's mentioned in the Bible, tithing. We'll talk about that in a bit. But it's the first first mention. And there's some interesting things that go with that. But we see here in Genesis and also in Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek is identified in two ways. He's identified as a king and he's identified as a priest. Now, there was such a thing in God's economy as a separation of church and state. Now, before you giggle about that, it's true. Uh, God disallowed kings to be priests and priests to be kings. There was a separation, and it's it's clear in the Old Testament. If you think about it, you look at King Saul, the first king that Israel had, that he was up against the Philistines in battle, and Samuel hadn't showed up, and so King Saul takes it upon himself to sacrifice uh, to the Lord, and, and Samuel showed up and said, what have you done? And because you've done this, the kingdom would have been yours forever, Saul. But because you've done this, the kingdom will be torn from your family. Your line stops here. God took that very seriously when Saul, the king, set himself up to carry out priestly things. The other one is King Uzziah. Remember, he sacrificed. And what happened to him? God gave him leprosy. God's, he, caused him to be afflicted, diseased as a result. So uh, on the other hand, too, looking at back in, in some of the things that we see prophetically, in Genesis 49, we read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, Judah would be the the, the tribe, the priest, or the kingly line in Israel, and the king would come from Judah. Uh, we also see in Numbers, uh, there's three places I found, 310, 338, 1640. You don't have to write those down. But it says, no one except a descendant of Aaron shall come to burn incense before the Lord. The priestly line was to stay within the sons of Aaron. It was very clear. And so we call that separation of church and state, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but God was very clear that those don't mix. So for this guy Melchizedek to show up to carry both offices is very unique. There's only been one other person in history that has done that. His name is Jesus. Died on a cross. He actually carries three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And so, fascinating that we see, here's this guy, like I said, he he walks in out of the mist, he's a a priest, and he's a king, and he brings bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham tithes to him, which shows homage. I mean, it's it's demonstrating clearly that this guy was above Abraham, and that's the point the writer's going to make. Uh, Verse 3 says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now, as we look at this in in Hebrews 7, verse 3, made like the Son of God, there's uh, opinions on this are split, and I'm going to walk right down the middle. Uh, I'll take a side, but it's only because I have opinions like everybody else. But the word made like, it's the only time that this Greek word, and it's a very long word, so I'm not going to even attempt to say it, um, is only used here in the New Testament. It's either used in an active sense or a passive sense. 
in an active sense, made like the Son of God, we could look at him as a type, a copy, or a model, that this is a, it's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany or theophany, depends on who you read, they call them different things. But truly, Jesus does show up. He shows up periodically throughout the whole Old Testament. And he's the one that himself said, in the, the scroll of the book, it's written of me. And, and I believe that, that that's who this is that's showing up. That's my own opinion. Is this is a, it's a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ before he took on humanity. Uh, or, in the passive sense, that he's similar to Christ. He's a shadow. Either one fits. He's either, it's either in the active sense that, that he is a, a, an appearance of Jesus himself, going way back, comes in, out of the fog, disappears back in the fog. We know him when he came and took a body and was born and all of that. Or, this is a shadow. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, I'll read this to you. It says, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ or the substances of Christ. So what the Apostle Paul is saying there, when people are trying to compel people to live by the Old Testament stuff, festivals, new moons, you know, all of that, he said, no, no, no. Those were a shadow. They were shadows in the Old Testament that had a fulfillment, the substance in Christ. And so at the very least, this is a shadow. But if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you already have the substance. You don't need the shadow. And part of what the writer's getting at here is, is that he's going to let these people know, look, don't go back to this Old Testament stuff. It's shadows. It's it's impressions. That's what a type is. It's an impression there. Uh, it's amazing. It's awesome to know that those things are fulfilled. We don't have to go by the 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 Jewish rabbinical calendar. I We had somebody come through here one time that was trying to compel people to live by the rabbinical calendar. It was like, and I, and I talked with them privately. I said, look, you know, we just don't adhere to that and just appreciate that's your position. You can have it. But don't peddle it. It's not something that I'm comfortable with. And because I don't want people to come in and start peddling doctrines that are anti this. Because it's tying up heavy loads for men. It's what Jesus got on the Pharisees about. He, and, and he didn't take that kindly. The people that Jesus poked were the ones who were the religious guys that were trying to impose things on the people. And they were the ones that he didn't waste words on. And it's very important for us to keep the doctrine pure. This is free, by the way. It's not in my notes. But it's very important for us to keep the doctrine pure. It's very important for us to understand what's New Covenant theology, what's part of the theology that we have as Christians, and what was left on the table when Judaism, when the law was fulfilled. The law wasn't bad. The law is an awesome expression of God's heart, of God's character, of God's nature. And we do well to study the Old Testament great value there. But we're not compelled to live by that because we're compelled to live in Christ in whom the law is fulfilled. That's shadows. This is substance. You understand the difference? Very important. Regardless, it's interesting. It isn't that Jesus has Melchizedek's kind of priesthood. Uh, I want to make that clear, make that distinction. Melchizedek had the kind of priesthood that 
Jesus has, which remains today. The writer says it didn't end. It remains that Melchizedek priesthood fulfilled by Christ remains today. He is the one to get you to the Father and to get the Father to you. And it goes on into eternity. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Uh, the Jews, when he talks about, consider how great this guy is, the Jews honored Abraham above everything. He's the most famous man that ever walked the face of the earth. If you look at even the false religions, the three great the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Abraham's at the top of the heap in all of those. And what the writer is saying is, no, 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 he's not at the top. He's not. There's somebody greater than him. His name's Melchizedek. And let me explain to you who Melchizedek represents. And that's a point that he's making here. He says, therefore, there's a superiority of Christ over Aaron because Aaron came after Melchizedek. Aaron had a lower priesthood than Melchizedek. Aaron was over a priesthood that was manned by humans. Melchizedek has a priesthood that's manned by God. When he talks about the spoils of war, the, literally the word spoils means taken off the top of the heap. He's talking about, and you could, I could do a whole thing about tithing. We'll talk about that because it's not about tithing. The tithing is not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. Giving is, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, verse five, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who receive a priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, referring to Melchizedek, uh, receives tithes from Abraham and are blessed and blessed him who had the promises. So the law commanded tithing to Levi from the other 11 tribes is what he's saying here. And that was something that God set up. He said, you're to support the work of the priestly line. You're to support the work of the Levites. And the people tithed to the Levites. And that was the spiritual principle uh, that he gave. But Melchizedek is superior because Abraham, being blessed by Melchizedek, acknowledged his superiority and willfully tithed to him. It was free will that was governing Melchizedek when he returned from the blessing when he tithed. He gave Melchizedek, a tenth of the spoils. Now, verse 7, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. This is an indisputable fact. And what the writer wants to be sure that the people are tracking with here is that Abraham is the lesser in this. Melchizedek is the greater. And the blesser is greater than the blessee in that sense. So what he's, he's doing is, is he's getting these people's attention because now they're beginning to see, he's bringing clarification that, Wow, Abraham, top of the heap, somebody greater than Abraham? This would be really interesting. I'd love to be a fly on the wall when these people, again, when they read this, when they came to this understanding, because they would have been spinning at this point, going, I always looked at Abraham as being the father of the nation, and yet there's a priest that comes wandering in and blesses Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to him, and I see from God's word, the, the writer is using God's word to support the case that he's making that Melchizedek is greater. And so he says in verse 8, here, 
Remember I talked about here contrasted to there here in, in verse 8. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there, reference to Melchizedek, he receives them of whom, whom it is witness that he lives. There, remember it said in Genesis he had no end of days, no genealogy, and that his life is not recorded as having ended. So in Israel they tithe to mortal men who were dying, and those guys received tithes. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, who lives? You see the pattern here where the writer is, he's just pushing the, the fact home that Melchizedek is better than Aaron. Melchizedek is better than Levi. He hits it from a number of angles and he's driving it home to these people. He wants them to get there is someone greater than, than, than Abraham and there is a priesthood that is greater than Levi's. So the Bible doesn't record his death. Verse 9, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I think that's interesting. I mean, what the writer does, and I look at this, I think, is that a stretch? But again, the Jewish mind, they looked at humanity as being sort of this endless stream. And so uh, if you look in chapter 11, it talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelling in tents. It talks about them in the same sentence as though they existed together, but they, you know, that was father, son, grandson. They, they were way apart, uh, in time. And yet they're represented as being the same. And that's again, it's part of the Hebrew mindset. It's part of how they processed information. So what he's saying is when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, that the sons of Levi were they were in his loins, they were in his lineage, and that they, in that sense, were tithing to Melchizedek as well. So he's, again, now he's saying it's not just that Melchizedek's better than the priest, he's saying that the Levitical priests actually tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. So making a strong point that this guy is greater, Melchizedek is greater than Aaron, that the priesthood is greater, and uh, the tribe of Levi... Again, genetically in the loins of Abraham, it's it goes back to the tithing thing in the Old Testament. It, you all, the people that were considered the lesser paid tithes to the greater. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was greater. And and it wasn't that there was and there was sort of a hierarchy in the Old Testament. There isn't in the church, by the way. It's an upside down pyramid. Um, it's not like CEO, pastor. I, I reject that. Um, it's to be greatest, to be servant of all. And, and in leadership in the body of Christ, you go low. Uh, it's not about going in there and bossing people around. It's about simply loving Christ and allowing him to work and to, to run this thing. I love the way he set up our church. Uh, I rely on, on God. Man, somebody asked me not long ago, how are you governed? It's, well, you know, Calvary Chapel is typically it's governed as a, as a pastor-led church, which can leave the door open for abuse if the pastor is not walking with the Lord. However, it's a model that works well. But I absolutely defer to godly men in, in the ministry that I have. I will not make decisions, big decisions on my own. I want men who I know are filled with the Holy Spirit men who I know are going to pray, men who have my back and know that the God of this world would like to take this or any other ministry down. And so very important, what he's establishing here is there's sort of a hierarchy that between Abraham and Melchizedek, that doesn't translate to the New Testament. 
part of teaching the Bible effectively is knowing what to leave on the table and knowing what to bring forward. That one I leave on the table. This isn't about power authority in a worldly sense. It's about servant authority, which is always lower. The point in all of this is to realize that you're free. Do you see why Jesus is infinitely superior? He is totally superior than anything and anyone in the Old Testament. The writer, and we'll look at it next week, folks, the writer is very, very clear as he puts forth this teaching on Melchizedek that that Jesus Jesus is superior in every single way. Uh, it doesn't make your faith more complicated. What he's doing here is he's bringing these people through this to give them understanding so that their faith could be returned to simplicity, simple devotion to Christ, unhindered by the problems and the questions that they're struggling with, not being stumbled by questions that pertaining to the, the priesthood and how does Jesus fit into all of this? Because after all, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Well, that's fine. But here's a guy who's a king. Kings only come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, but Melchizedek predates all of that. And, and priests only come from the tribe of Levi. Well, Melchizedek predates all of that. And he's greater. How do you know he's greater? Abraham paid tithes to him. And so what that would do is give these people the assurance that the things that they're believing, they could put stock in. That the, the relationship that they have with Christ that they could settle down in, that they could understand that, yeah, things are tough. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on around them that their life is very difficult, but they could put their faith in Christ and have a durable faith that led to a durable relationship that knowing that he doesn't promise to keep us from trials, but he promises to walk with us through them. And as he's walking through this trial with these people, he can glean confidence that the one with whom we have to do is the one with whom we have to do for eternity. Eternity hangs in the balance for these people, for us. If your life isn't hidden in Christ, that's something you need to transact with God on. And I pray that that's today. I want to take a minute because, um, again, I mentioned the, the, the principle of first mention. This is the first place where tithing is mentioned in the Bible. And, and I want to clear some things up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes, But this I say, who, who, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Tithing, as I mentioned we call it tithing. I mean, in the bulletin, it says tithes and offerings. You know, we have the agape box over on the table by the sound booth. And, and that's fine. That, it, it's sort of a cultural thing. And, and I'm not going to get all hung up about it. But tithing is an Old Testament term. It's not a New Testament term. It, it, in the New Covenant, it's it's all about giving. It's about free Free will giving. It's, it's about being a cheerful giver. It's not about, and yeah, does the ministry survive on the gifts of the people? Absolutely we do. We depend on, on people's giving as the Lord leads to go forward with the ministry. And, and that's just how it works. Uh, and yet beyond that, is there a biblical principle for giving? Absolutely there is. And, and so I have never taught extensively on giving. I haven't taught on tithing and all that. You guys know I've been here almost two years. 
And I just don't like talking about the money. I don't want ever people to think or to perceive that we're making it about the money. I don't want people to think that we're out there to rip people off. I just don't. I'm just not going to do that. And is there a spiritual principle involved? Yeah, there is. And is it a solid principle that's put forth in God's word? Yeah, it is. So when we talk about it, what is the thing that drives giving? And the thing, the one thing singularly that comes to my mind, comes into my heart, is that it's all his. Everything, the Bible says, what do you have that you haven't received? And, and I was looking back, and this is something that I believe the Lord showed me out of Exodus. I'm going to read a couple of passages and then we'll wrap up. In Exodus 35, Moses is commanded by God to receive an offering for building the tabernacle. And, 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 and things go sideways, but not in the way that we would think that they go sideways. In, in Exodus 35, it says, And Moses spoke to all the congregation, the children of Israel, saying, Is this the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering for the Lord? Who, whoever is of a willing heart, understand that, let him bring it as an offering of the, to the Lord, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, whatever that, uh, badger skins and acacia wood. I, I haven't seen those in the offering box anytime lately, but, um, uh, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the, the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, the, the priestly garments. The point that he's making in that is for the, this, this was currency for these people. And, and so he, he's saying, let them bring it, let them give and, and, and receive an offering from the people, Moses, and so that goes on. Moses announces it to the people. And then in Exodus 36, this is what happened. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the making of the sanctuary. Okay? So they continued bringing to him free will offerings. Again, free will. Nobody's going to compel you. Nobody's going to beg for bucks. Um, then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, listen to this, the people are bringing much more than enough for the service of the work of the, uh, which the Lord commanded us to do. So every pastor's dream. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the, the camp saying, let neither man or woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing their offering from the material they had. Uh, the, the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, it was too much. So what happened was Moses was instructed by God, receive an offering for the work uh, uh, that, that needs to be done, right? Moses puts it out there and the people start to give. They give so much that he has to shut them down. He says, no, wait, stop. We got too much. I, we can't take any more. Just, just keep your stuff. Keep your, your, belong, keep your possessions. The thing that comes to my mind is what's different here? As I mentioned, it's all his stuff. It's not theirs. Now, these people would have had a very clear idea that it was not their stuff. They came out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, they had nothing except God said, I want you to take the plunder. I want you to take this stuff that doesn't belong to you and I want you, and it'll be yours. You leave Egypt with the booty, okay? 
And they did. They left with the gold and the, and the, all of the stuff. It's the same stuff that he's gathering here. They had a clear idea that it wasn't their stuff because guess what? It wasn't their stuff. <laughs> we disconnect. When it comes to giving, we disconnect. We think, well, it's my stuff. No. Even though you have a job or you have a retirement or whatever, it's still God's stuff. So let each one give free will according to how the Lord puts it on their heart. Yeah. So do we use, we take the response of stewardship and it's a stewardship for you. It's a stewardship for the church. We take that extremely seriously. And we watch the bottom line and we cut the, and we do all and we want to support the work of missions and we want to grow in our reach to our community. All of those things are part of what we take very seriously. Do we rely on the giving of the people? Absolutely we do. <laughs> Look at it, what it's costing us to move. And it's like, that's a lot because it's like you got lots of expenses coming out. And I'm not putting it forth and begging you guys for some special offering for the building fund or any of that. So I just don't believe that that's part of what we do here. Do we make it available for you to give? Yes. It's an act of obedience. But I want you to know, you're not given to Calvary Chapel. You're given to the Lord. And what these people did when they built the sanctuary, they were giving to the Lord. And so if that's an area that you wrestle with, join the club. We wrestle from time to time. Especially when the bank account gets down there and we go, oh, you know, do I, and I, it's, you know what? Honor God. That's all I can tell you. Giving is absolutely a biblical principle and it's an act of obedience. And you won't find me talking about it except for when we come across it in God's word because I just don't believe it. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. You know, he said, I'm called to be a minister and a minister means servant. And so God has called me as a pastor of this church to serve you. Now, if I get up here every Sunday or whenever, and I'm asking you and I'm, I'm tapping you, I'm manipulating you, I'm guilting you or whatever it is to give, then I'm asking you to minister to me. And something's backwards, isn't it? So give as the Lord leads, give yeah, we call it tithing and offerings and stuff. You know, and, and the, a lot of that's cultural because it came out of the Old Testament, but it's really, it's not tithing. It's giving of your heart or giving from your heart, your time, your talent, and your treasure. It's all giving. Uh, I love seeing that in, in, in motion in the body of Christ. I, I love when I see people give not from their excess, but from their substance because Jesus blessed that woman with the might. She gave what little she had, but it was all she had because she wanted to see the work go forward. So in that, understand New Testament parameters, giving. It's not, it's not tithing. It's not a tenth. Actually, it's all of it. And we decide what portion to give back to him. Israel didn't have much trouble because they really didn't have it coming in. We don't either. We kind of get hung up on that thing, I earned it thing. And then we, we pull back. I want to encourage you, get past that. Have the heart that these people did. I would love to get before you guys someday and say, okay, all right, you guys, stop. Okay, stop. We got more than we need, you know, but, and if we have more than we need, then we'll start expanding our reach. I mean, I don't see that happening, but I love the idea of what's happening here. So with that, it's 1130. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this marvelous example of Melchizedek and and what he means to us. Uh...